All right. Hey, welcome once again to FBC. We're so glad you're here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, I just want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 8. As you just heard a little bit of it read aloud, a little preview there, we're, we're jumping in to Acts 8. Verse 14 is where we're going to be as we just continue this walk through the New Testament book of Acts that we've been in for uh, some time now. Acts chapter 8, verse 14. And as you turn there, I want to share, I read recently from author Brant Hansen. Uh, he was describing this 1960s science experiment study that was called Mouse Utopia. Has anyone heard of it? Okay, Mouse Utopia, 1960s science study. I know it hits a little close to home because currently mice are running the town of Benicia. So maybe your house has them like ours has. Um, so I'm sorry if this is a, you know, tri I'm triggering you right now. But we got to talk about mice for a little bit. In this study, they created a wonderful place for mice to live. They called it Mouse Utopia. Food, uh, plenty of clean water, plenty of open space, plenty of tunnels and uh, little apartments. And the absence of predators, fresh bedding, everything that they could want. And they wanted to see, will this mouse society flourish? And at first, flourish it did as the mice uh, got busy uh, making more mice. And so the population increased. I think there were about 620 mice after a year when they started with just a few of them. But then, around the one-year mark, as the population was growing, things started to kind of steady off and plateau. And they noticed a lot of change in the behavior of the mice. The men started to get more violent and aggressive and uninterested in the others. The female mice started to abandon their young. Uh, mice would start to kind of roam around in gangs and attack one another randomly. They would kill and eat one another. Uh, interestingly, some didn't get involved in kind of the violence in that way, but they withdrew and they just became isolated. And the study uh, called them the beautiful ones true story, because they would just go like in their own little mouse apartment, separated from the rest, and just groom themselves all day, and just making sure their coat and their tail and everything was pristine, and they looked nice, and they would live and die alone in isolation. I'm not making this up. You can Google it. Um, there's this, all this strange behavior they started to notice. Not only that, but then again, the population started to plummet, and even though there was room for thousands more mice... Again, perfect conditions. They could have had a lot bigger population. Uh, the population started to decline. They stopped breeding. The mice got really apathetic until eventually all the mice were dead. Disney's making a movie about it right now. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, but this is true. And so this, this study really captured the scientific imagination for some time. Like, what exactly do we make of this? There are different explanations given for what happened and why it went so horribly wrong. One of those explanations, which I think is spot on, had to do with purpose. They realized these mice had no purpose, nothing to strive for or work towards, nothing in life they really had to do. Everything was just given to them, right? Plenty of food, plenty of water, plenty of shelter, no predators, nothing to do. And so apathy and disorder started to set in. And so some would theorize, hey, if mice need purpose to thrive, 
How much more then do human beings need purpose to thrive? Though we often pursue a life of comfort and ease and abundance, it's actually good for us and meaningful to have good work to do. Work, purpose that stretches us, requires much of us, wears us out, perplexes us at times. And that's good news in general for human beings to remember, but also it's good news to remember that God has given his people good, meaningful work to do. He has given his church a mission and a purpose in the world, right? We're not just saved and then we wait around until we die, or we're not just saved and then zapped up to heaven, right, immediately. No, we are saved and then called to be about God's work in the world. And this work that he's given us is a global mission, a mission of eternal importance to make disciples and share the gospel with the lost and dying world. And see, the subtitle for our study in Acts is what? Church on Mission. Meaning there's a purpose and a call that God has given to us as his church. We're not just saved and then called to be comfortable and sit around. We're called to go and and make disciples and love our city in the name of Jesus and see God's kingdom come in Benicia, in the Bay Area, as in heaven. And to be the witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He's left us here to be witnesses, right? To show and tell other people about the love of Jesus and who God is and call them to follow him as well. We, we've seen this on display. Like as we've read through the book, we've seen it. We've seen it already in the uh, eighth chapter. Think back to earlier in chapter 8. It said, those who had been scattered, this is verse 4, preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. So as the church in Jerusalem is forming and growing, they then face persecution, right? And they're scattered throughout the ancient world. And it says, as they go, they're preaching the word. And they're sharing uh, with everyone they come into contact with who Jesus is, the good news of Jesus the Messiah, And Philip even goes down to Samaria. And we spent some time in Samaria over the last few weeks. We met a guy named Simon. We're going to talk about Simon more this morning. We saw how the Samaritans believed the gospel and responded to Jesus. We saw some of the dynamics there as they were were baptized. And so just a few quick refreshers as we see in chapter 8, the church on mission. A couple quick hits. This is mostly, again, recap. First, every believer should live on mission. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to live on mission. It's not that if just a few select missionaries or church professionals, pastors, paid staff are the ones doing the work of ministry. No, every believer should live on mission. We see again in verse 4 that those who had been scattered, the, the, the countless unnamed, uh, unknown believers uh, to us, they went about the Lord's business. And so we likewise or to do that. Second, every circumstance is an opportunity for mission. Right here they are going about their life in Jerusalem as followers of Jesus. Persecution hits. They're scattered. Like for their own safety, they have to flee the city. And they say, hey, while we're here, as we're going, we're going to be about the Lord's business wherever he sends us. So in this new city or on the road or along the way, we're going to tell people about Jesus. Every circumstance is an opportunity for mission. And lastly, everyone is called to repent and trust in Jesus. Right, as the gospel goes to Samaria, the good news is not, hey, you guys are like mostly there. Don't worry about it. The message is actually this call to repentance 
and turn from the counterfeits of, of sorcery and magic that we saw Simon doing and turn from really their, their Samaritan false religion and trust in Jesus, the Messiah. So everyone is called to repent and trust in Jesus. Again, mostly recap, mostly refreshers, what we've seen so far. Now let's jump into some new territory here in Samaria. Uh, The next part, this should strike us as a little bit odd. Maybe as you heard it read aloud, you're like, wait a second, there's some kind of squirrely things going on here in the text. Okay, first look. It says, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Okay, so far so good. Then when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now again, some of this, quite normal, quite expected, right? We see that the apostles in Jerusalem uh, still have authority as leaders in the church, and so even as the Jesus movement spreads, we see that the apostles in Jerusalem play a key leadership role. And so they hear about uh, the Samaritans receiving the gospel, right? Word gets back to headquarters from Samaria to the apostles in Jerusalem. Hey, the Samaritans are believing in Jesus and being baptized. This is amazing news, right? Amazing, because as we've talked before, the Jews and Samaritans did not get along. And so this word of a Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, coming to the Samaritans, they hear about it, and they respond in faith. That's a big deal. And so they're like, wait a second, we got to go check this out. So they send, you know, some representatives, Peter and John, and say, hey, go check this out. Make sure everything is going well over there. Right? Like, make sure this is actually legitimate. We're not just hearsay about this. Make sure with your own eyes that things are going okay. So far, so good. But then it gets interesting when they arrive. Again, you already saw it, verse 15. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 16, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. Here's what's strange about this. The text tells us that those in Samaria... They're new believers. They've been baptized in the name of Jesus, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Now, that's odd because as we read through the New Testament, uh, Acts, and also the rest of the New Testament in general, we typically see uh, the same things happening at the same time at conversion. The the conversion package, you could say, uh, involves faith and repentance, then people get baptized, and they re- receive the Holy Spirit. Like, they, they go together. Faith and repentance, they're baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. Um, think back to Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching at Pentecost. He says, Peter replied, they say, hey, what must, what's me, what must we do as they hear the gospel? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there it is. That's, that's the, the conversion package, you could say. Repentance and faith, baptized in the name of Jesus, and then receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? As we said before, there aren't uh, two tiers of Christians. Like There are Christians who receive the Holy Spirit, and then there are Christians who don't yet have the Holy Spirit or don't really have the Holy Spirit or have to wait. Maybe they'll get the Holy Spirit later if you upgrade the, you know, the tithing plan or whatever. Um, there's not two tiers. And yet we read Acts chapter 8, and we have repentance and faith, And we have baptism in the name of Jesus, but no Holy Spirit. 
What do we do with that? Because of this tension, there's a few different explanations that theologians and scholars have thrown out there to try and make sense of this. Some will say this. Maybe this is normal. And this is typically folks in a more like charismatic or Pentecostal circles will say, actually, this is probably normal and evidence that there needs to be some future second blessing for believers. That, yeah, you could be in the faith, you can be a follower of Jesus, but you don't really have the power of the Holy Spirit until something, you know, something happens later, and then some people receive the Holy Spirit in this big, powerful way, this kind of second blessing theology. Um, And they say, hey, this is evidence of that. This is actually quite normal, they would say. Uh, The problem with that is, again, the rest of the New Testament and elsewhere in the book of Acts, there's, there's normally no delay in people putting their faith in Jesus and receiving the Spirit. And so it, it doesn't seem to be normal at all. Even, even the fact that Luke highlights it. He's like, hey, they believe in Jesus. They were baptized and they haven't yet received the Spirit. Even him pointing that out is kind of indicating like, hey, this is not normal. It's kind of odd. Like something's happening here that we need to pay attention to. Not to mention that, but if, if they didn't have the Spirit at first, then this wouldn't be like evidence of a second blessing theology because they never had the first blessing of the Spirit in the first place. So I think for a number of reasons, we, we shouldn't look at that as some do as saying, hey, this is normal and this is what we should expect. So, okay, some would say then, okay, it's not that, but ah, this is proof that maybe their conversion wasn't genuine. Because if faith and repentance and baptism and the Spirit all go together and they don't have the Spirit, then maybe the faith or repentance and baptism wasn't actually real conversion. And the argument goes something like this. Yeah, if they really were trusting in Christ, they would have received the Spirit, as we see elsewhere in the New Testament. But here's the problem with that view. Again, the text seems to indicate that they really were believers. Like the language it uses, it says they believed the good news about Jesus. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. When the apostles arrived, they didn't come and like sort out their theology. Be like, hey, what you guys believe before, that wasn't actually quite right. Let's clear that up. And here's the true gospel. Now that you believe in Jesus, ah, you received the Holy Spirit. They didn't do that. What did they do? They just showed up and prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't seem like they're saying, hey, your conversion actually wasn't genuine. So maybe there's something else going on. Here's the best sense I think we can make of this. First, it's important to remember that the book of Acts is a transitional book, meaning there are some things we read about in Acts that are, that are unique, that we shouldn't expect all to repeat in exactly the same way, because it's this book that's showing this, this transfer from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, uh, from the Old Way to now the coming of the Spirit and the name in the church of Jesus being built. And so there's some things that are transitional here where we would say, hey, everything in the book of Acts is descriptive, but not everything is prescriptive. Everything's descriptive. Hey, here's what happened. Not everything is prescriptive in the sense of, hey, this is what should and regularly often happen. That's actually, if you think about that, a good principle when we read our Bibles in general. Um, Often things in the Bible are descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. For example, polygamy. You didn't think I was going there this morning. And here we are talking about polygamy. Some will say, hey, look, the Bible, when it talks about sexuality and marriage, there's all kinds of different things prescribed. Look, David had a lot of wives. There's polygamy in the Old Testament. So why don't we just do that? Um, 
But just because it's described in the Bible, like, hey, this happened, doesn't mean it's prescribed, meaning you should go do it too. Actually, every time you see polygamy in the Bible, it's a train wreck. Just like you read the story in the narratives, wherever it shows up, it's a train wreck. And it doesn't say explicitly, hey, don't do that. But you see from the story, like, oh, this is not God's, this is not a good thing. Okay, so just because it's described doesn't mean it's prescribed. Polygamy is an example. Also, the, uh, the, the church in the New Testament meeting in homes, Okay? We see that the church, hey, they gathered in homes for worship. That's described. It's not a bad thing, but it's not prescribing that, hey, the church can and only should meet in homes forever throughout history. Like, that doesn't rule out us owning a piece of property and having a large gathering space like this. So it describes the church meeting in homes. It's not prescribing that, hey, the church can only meet in homes. You see what I'm saying? So there are some things we read that are described. Hey, here's what happened and what was happening then. We need to understand it. It's not necessarily prescriptive. And that takes some like theological work to understand, hey, the context and the situation. Anyway, so with this, I think what we're witnessing in Samaria is this unique moment in the life of the early church where really some groundbreaking things are happening, right? The gospel, for the first time, being taken outside of Jerusalem and to a a non-Jewish audience. First time. So something big is happening here. And so we would say, hey, why did God sovereignly delay the arrival of the Holy Spirit? I think we could put it succinctly. I think God wanted to reconcile Jews and Samaritans into one true church. God has only one church. And so from the beginning, he didn't want the rift and the tension between Jews and Samaritans to continue in the life of the early church. These tribes had been separated, right, for generations and generations. And so... Peter and John come to see what's going on. And it's possible that they would be suspicious or skeptical, knowing the Samaritans and their history. Are they really for real about this whole Jesus thing? Are they really included in this great movement of God the way that we are? But we see, verse 17, what? That Peter and John place their hands on them, and they pray for them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And so I think the Spirit purposely delays his arrival until this moment where Peter and John place their hands on the Samaritans because they're going to touch them and be up close and personal with them and, and care about them and connect with them and look them in the eye and pray for these Samaritans. And rather than keeping a, a suspicious distance and keeping them at arm's length and we're not really sure about them, no, they see their sincerity of faith. They see their desire to follow the Lord Jesus. They see now the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans, just like for them in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. And it can't help but soften their hearts and reconcile people across those social barriers. So I think the Holy Spirit was waiting to show the disciples, hey, the Samaritans are in, fully in, they are a part of the people of God, just like you, apostles, and just like you, Jews, and you've now seen it for yourself. Again, it's likely that without this moment, maybe the Samaritan Christians and the Jewish Christians would have set up rival authorities and rival churches like they had done in the past. But God desires unity for his church, 
And so from the very beginning, he bridges that gap to heal that fracture. One commentator put it this way from the ESV Study Bible. God waited to give the manifestation of the full power of the Spirit until some of the apostles themselves could be present. That way there would be no question that they had received it. And they should be counted as full members of the church. Both Jews and non-Jews who believed in Jesus now had full membership status among God's people. And so for us today, we should reflect on this and see God's heart for unity within his church. And that inclusion in the church and belonging to and being part of the people of God is not about who you have been. It's not about your past. It's not as if your, your sin in the past excludes you from participation in the kingdom of God. Right? No, nothing in your past can disqualify you from the love of God if you repent and trust in Christ. Again, the apostles, their temptation may have been the Samaritans believe in Jesus, huh? I'm not so sure because we know them and we know their grandparents and their grandparents fought my grandparents and we know their history and we know their generational sin and we know their impurity and we know what they're really like and so we're not so sure about them. But now they have this clear sign from heaven. They have received the same spirit that we have. And so in Jesus, through the power of the spirit, there's this new family being formed. And so today, we similarly are to look at one another and not hold one another's past sins against them. Right? In Christ, it doesn't matter if our tribes have been battling for generations or our ethnic groups have been at odds for years or people like you haven't gotten along with people like me for generations. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus, like me, then we're family now. Right? Do you see that if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus, then those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus as well are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a huge deal. Unity in the church on the basis of faith in Christ and not allowing other barriers racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, uh, past sin, history, whatever it is, divide us. This unity uh, should also inform how we relate to and talk about other churches and other denominations. In our day, we need to have the humility to say, you know what, there are other Christians and other churches uh, that might do things a little bit differently than we do, but we can still call them brothers and sisters in Christ. As long as we agree on the essentials, we're preaching the true gospel, we're worshiping the triune God together, we're calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus, then you know what, we can disagree on some of the non-essentials. We can disagree on secondary issues in the family, like styles of worship, you know, philosophy of ministry sometimes, how people practice baptism. Uh, some of our best friends in the world are Anglicans. He wears the collar and the robe sometimes, and they, you know, baptize babies, and, and we don't, and we have reasons for not doing that, and yet brothers and sisters in Christ, co-laborers in ministry and the gospel. Again, secondary issues, like maybe your view of the end times or your view of the first couple chapters of Genesis, we can say, hey, we're going to hold to the essentials as followers of Jesus, 
<clears throat> but there are going to be some things that maybe are done differently in different churches and with different believers on secondary issues, and we can still call one another brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I think we should, we should speak and think warmly of other churches in our city and nearby and love Pastor Larry and our friends at Northgate and Pastor Kelly and our friends at New Harbor and Pastor Phil and our friends at Lighthouse and Pastor Ryan and uh, Trinity Church of Benicia and on and on. Say, hey, there are other churches and we celebrate the gospel ministry that they're doing, even though maybe they, their expression of church looks a little different than ours or maybe they believe a little differently than ours, you can still see them as partners in the gospel. <clears throat> so we see this beautiful display of unity between Jews and Samaritans, all centered on Jesus. But then there's that guy, Simon, again. What are we going to do with this Simon? You remember him from a few weeks ago? Simon, the magician, the sorcerer. Look, look, look what happens. Simon just ruined this really sweet moment here in church history. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Remember Simon? He uh, previously had, had held the people of Samaria. Just, just, he had captivated them with his, his magic, his ancient sorcery and witchcraft, uh, whatever exactly he was doing. And it seems like his heart was still caught up in his old life. Right? It was common for someone like him to really have uh, this drive for money and power and manipulation. And so he sees the apostles with this powerful, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God coming upon the Samaritans. Clearly, it was somehow visible, audible, noticeable when the Holy Spirit arrived, like it was in Acts 2, I would imagine. And he says, hey, I want that power. I want to be able to wield that power and give that power out to whom I want. And there's, I would imagine, some kind of selfish motivation here. For the right price, if I just pay enough then I can wield this for my own purposes. Maybe he wants to get in on the ground floor of this thing. He said, hey, this Jesus thing, this is big. This is going to be big money, people. I want to get involved in this pyramid scheme and I'll be up at the top and I'll teach others and there'll be my whole downlines and everyone's going to make money and I'm going to make a lot. Seems like there's something going on here with Simon in that way. And it shows he really doesn't understand the gospel or who God is. And because of this, I mean, scholars debate, go back and forth on, hey, was, was he really genuinely saved or not? You know, and, and some, some people, um, well, there's people on both sides of that that, that are quite negative about Simon, uh, saying, man, there's, there's no way. Look at his heart. Look at how Peter responds to him. But there's some that say, no, he was genuinely converted, and he look at his prayer for repentance in a few verses, and maybe he was really in and just, you know, was sin. We... It's hard to say conclusively exactly where Simon ended up. I will say church history doesn't look too favorably upon him. Uh, but the text doesn't officially say exactly what happens to him. But we can agree that he's definitely not a good example to follow. Right? We can say that much. That we probably, this isn't saying like, hey, go be like Simon. That's, that's not the takeaway. There's even a word for what happens here. There's an English word, simony. Have you heard of it? I just learned about this this week. Seriously, an English word called simony. It's the making of profit out of sacred things uh, or the act of buying or selling church offices, roles, or sacred things. 
Again, I didn't know that was a word. That's a word. And it comes from, again, this event in Acts chapter 8. So you can take that to your next cocktail party and share that fact and sound smart to your friends. Uh, that's what's going on here. Or simony. Yeah, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. Simony. Simon. Okay, you get it. Moving on. So what do we make of this Simon? He appears to think, think about it, that God, the living God, the Spirit of God, can be bought. If he just pulls the right levers, pays the right price, does the right thing, says the right words, then he can wield this power and get what he wants. Look, look at how Peter responds. Peter answered, may your money perish with you. Some translators translate that to hell with you and your money. Seriously, it's very stark. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. See, that's where people with a negative look on Simon will say, look, Peter's saying, hey, you're full of bitterness. You're still held captive to sin. He's not really walking with the Lord. But then some look at verse 24 and say, then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. There seems to be some kind of repentance there. We don't know exactly what to say, but otherwise it's a problem what he does. Peter clearly responds. Here's the same way. God cannot be bought. That's not how God works. Right? Once, uh, he calls him to repent of this attitude of thinking that with your money, you can get God to do things for you. You can manipulate God. Now, most of us look at Simon here and we say, well, of course we know that. How foolish. Who would ever try to actually say to the apostles, hey, can I pay you and you can give me the Holy Spirit and I can do what I want with him? How silly. And yet, I don't think we're really that different from Simon. And we likewise have this tendency in our heart where even, maybe we profess faith, maybe we're walking with the Lord, but we still have this temptation to try to use God to get what we want. We still want power and control. And instead of letting God control us and surrendering to God, acknowledging he's on the throne and I'm not, he's God and I'm not, He's the one with authority and power, and I'm not. And so I'm going to obey him. Rather than surrendering to the Lord, we try to have power over the Lord. And so we, maybe we go to church. Maybe we're here today because we think, man, if I just show up and get in those doors, something magical is going to happen and God is going to bless me. Or we give money to the church. We tithe out of obligation or think that, hey, if I just put more money in the basket, something's going to come back around to me. And it's really not about a free act of worship before the Lord. It's about manipulating God to getting what we want. Or again, you can just go down the checklist. I'll read my Bible so that God will bless me. I'll say my prayers so that God will do what I want. I'll raise my kids uh, God's way so that on the other side I'll get you know, good, obedient kids who, who walk with the Lord. Or I'll work, I'll work hard in my job so that God will owe me success and promotion and financial well-being. You go on and on. We, we do things that maybe we're called to do, supposed to do, but our heart in doing them is not because we love the Lord. It's not because we love our Father. It's not because uh, it's a grateful, free response to all He's done for us. It's still out of manipulation. It's like Simon. And so the, the sorcerer's formula, 
Simon's formula is this, God, if, if I do blank, then God owes me blank. Very simple formula, right? If I do this, God, you owe me. Input this, output this. Again, whether it's work hard, read my Bible, go to church, give to the church, then God will owe me success, health, wealth, well-being, promotion, you name it. Do we sometimes try to trade our way to God's blessing? Notice, friends, this is not how God works. This is not who God is. First of all, God is all-powerful and sovereign, and we are not. And so to think that somehow God could be in our debt is a very off-base and foolish thought. To think that he owes us anything, that he can be manipulated. Again, that's not faith. That's about control. And here's what's tricky about this. Good people of First Baptist Church of Benicia. You can live this out, and it could look on the outside, very pious and spiritual and um, religious, and yet be corrupt in your heart. Religious and irreligious people are after the same thing. Most often it's power, control, and autonomy. And so the irreligious person, the secular person, will say, I don't want anything to do with church or God because I want to have power and control and autonomy over my life. I don't want God to tell me what to do. So I'm going to go live however I want. And I'm not going to listen to church or the Bible or whatever. So off I go. But a religious person, still seeking power, control, autonomy, say, I'm actually going to use God to get what I want. So rather than running from God, I'm going to stick around and I'm going to go to church and I'm going to jump through the hoops. All in order that God will owe me and I'll get the life that I want. Either way, the individual is still in control, still seeking power, still seeking autonomy. There's just a religious route to that and an irreligious route to it. The good news is that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, sets us free from this type of living. Because in in the gospel, we realize that God has freely given us all things. No one forced God to go to the cross. Nobody made him do that. He wasn't manipulated into saving us. He chose to do this because of his kindness and grace. And so we have a God in heaven who loves us, a God who is full of mercy, a God who is full of grace, a God who cannot be bought or manipulated, and yet he chose to lay down his life for us. And that, that's why Peter was so angry, I think, with Simon, saying, Simon, you don't get it. Simon, you've totally missed the point. Simon, you're so caught up in your old ways and in your sin because he's completely twisting the gospel and inverting God's gracious character. Again, in Christ, God's already given us everything. He's already freely uh, given us himself and held nothing back. He saved us and forgiven us and ransomed us from death and given us eternal life. And he's given us his spirit to those who believe it's all free. And Simon instead rejects the free gift and thinks that he has to pay for it or that he can buy it. But again, what can Simon give to God that isn't already his? What can we give to God that isn't already his? 
And so instead of trying to manipulate and control God, the gospel tells us of the free grace and love of God offered to whoever would believe. Whoever would simply receive this free gift of God, including his Holy Spirit. And so then, if we have received the love of God freely by his grace and by his mercy through no work of our own, then we're radically freed to love and serve God and obey him, not out of uh, bondage and duty, but out of delight and in grateful response to all that he's done for us. See, if we don't get the gospel right and understand what we, God has freely given us, then we're always going to live in control mode and fear mode and manipulation mode. And it's, I got to earn it. I got to work for it. And it's all just a self-salvation project. But if we get the gospel, look at what he's freely given me in Christ through no work of my own. Then it just sets us free. I can't buy it or earn it or work for it. He's given it to me freely. So now in grateful response, I want to love my Father in heaven and walk in his ways for his glory and my good and the good of his world. So if you're here this morning, just hear me. Don't, don't try to earn it. Don't try to manipulate God. God cannot be bought, but would you just accept his free gift of love and grace offered to you in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we do thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, that you've given us your spirit to indwell us. You've forgiven us of our sins. You've given us this new life, not through our works, not because we've earned it, but because of the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us just rest in that truth. Help us be a church that is unified on the gospel, a church that is uh, charitable towards other believers and other churches. Help us strive for unity within our church and within the capital C church in our area. And Father, help us humbly come before you and remember that you are a giving and gracious God. You have freely given us eternal life in your Son. Would that sink into our hearts and then free us and follow you wherever you send us. I do pray, Lord, if anyone's here this morning and they've not repented and trusted in you, Jesus, and received forgiveness and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, that even now, Lord, they would turn their hearts to you and cry out to you, Lord, and place their faith in you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. That today would be a a day of salvation. Lord, we worship you together and pray this in Jesus' name.